Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. I'm Tavis Smiley, and I'm thrilled to have you hanging out with us today in this uh, first hour of our program. Uh, as promised now, I'm in conversation with UT Austin sociology professor Michael Sierra Arvalo. Uh, that's Arevalo. Arevalo. I'll get that right. Arevalo. Is that, is that right, Michael? Arevalo? That's right, Tavis. Thanks for I appreciate that. No, I want to get it right, man. I, I uh, <laughs> with a name like Tavis, I get called Travis so much. I'm used to it now. As I say, just don't call me late for dinner. I've been called many, many things, uh, but I want to get that <laughs> get that get that last name right. Uh, but I'm pl- I'm pleased to have you on for a conversation about law enforcement's existential crisis, as he lays out quite brilliantly in his new text. It's called the Danger Imperative: Violence, Death, and the Soul of Policing. So, first of all, good to have you on the program. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for thanks for your time. No, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. My delight, my delight. Let me just jump right in. I said this at the at the top of the show today. I said that I want to sort of interrogate you on on the phrasing of this uh, of this subtitle, the soul of policing. Let's just start there. Mm-hmm. What what is is there a soul when it comes to policing? Sure. I mean, I argue that there is a soul in the book, right. uh, as you might imagine. Uh, but I want something to highlight for. For listeners, is that when I say the soul, I'm not really saying it's something that policing should be or that it's uncontested. It's instead a reflection of what policing is. It's a description of the central motivating ethos. If you want to understand how and why policing happens the way that it does, I argue that you have to understand policing's preoccupation with violence. And that is what I say is the soul of policing today. Mm-hmm. Why is policing, to use your phrase, preoccupied with violence? We're told that they are to protect and serve, but here you come arguing that they are preoccupied with violence. Why so? Uh, they're preoccupied with violence because that's the way the institution is designed. From the day you walk into the academy until the day that you sign off on the radio and you uh, head home with your retirement, every single day in the police department is one in which you are continually reminded that you may have to fight for your life at any moment. This is intentional. This is not an accident. Mm. Why not be preoccupied with with serving? Um, um, why are police um, perennially uh, in fear? Mm. So I think that there's an important distinction here. There are other values that exist within policing, uh, service and justice and honor and courage. And I've seen all those things myself in the course of the thousand hours that I spent with police across three cities, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and one in the Southwest. What I argue, though, is that while there are other important values in policing, when rubber meets road, what officers are going to privilege above all else is going to be their own survival. Um, So it's not to say that those other values aren't there and that officers don't uh, show courageous thought for citizens. But when you want to understand the day-to-day reality, when you want to understand the day-to-day uses of violence, which goes from shootings, but also the far more common grabbing people, pushing people, handcuffing people, Mm -hmm. those behaviors are justified on the grounds of officer safety and ensuring Mm -hmm. officer survival. When you think about it that way, and uh, and Lord knows I am not uh, going to sit here and make a defense for police, although I do believe that most are decent people. Uh, they're always those bad apples, uh, but they don't need me to defend them. But to, to, to your point about the fact that what, what matters most to them is their own survival in a field that is as dangerous as policing is, as I think about it, I guess that's not, that doesn't really strike me as, as shocking that they'd be concerned about their own survival. I guess the question is how you balance concern about your own survival with service. So how do you balance survival with serving? Mm. 
It's a great question, Tavis. I think that what I point to in the book is that this is not necessarily an irrational concern for police. Mm -hmm. There are more guns than people in the United States, and officers in this country are violently victimized, both in terms of assaults, shootings, and in terms of deaths, than in other industrialized nations like Germany or Wales or England, and all of that is true. What I try to point out in The Danger Imperative is that there are consequences for orienting policing in terms of its training and its policy and its culture such that officers privilege their own survival over the safety and well-being of the public in the moment. So how you balance those things, I think, is a very, very sticky question, which is why I'm actually more interested, instead of changing policing, I'm more interested in shrinking policing's footprint and looking for other avenues to enhance public safety. Mm, now you sound like Black Lives Matter, shrinking police's uh, in, uh, in, input. <laughs> mm. Well, I do believe that Black Lives Matter. Uh, I'm not sure what specific attitudes you're pointing to within that large and mm -hmm. decentralized movement. But what I'm interested in is taking things off of policing's plate. Mm -hmm. I think that officers themselves would be the first ones to say, I don't know why I'm being sent to take this report on a burglary that's eight hours cold. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I'm being sent to this argument between a mom and her teenager that doesn't want to go to school. There are other people that can address those kinds of concerns. And frankly, I think a lot of officers would prefer to have some of their time freed up. You know, it's a powerful point. I couldn't agree more with you. And for that matter, with Black Lives Matter, when they suggested there's certain things that police just ought not to be doing. I haven't wrapped my brain yet on abolishing police in this country. Because when somebody's breaking in my mm -hmm. house, I do want to call somebody. So I'm not sure mm -hmm. that I want to abolish them. But I do believe that BLM is right, that and you are right, uh, Michael, that there are certain things that police ought not be doing. And yet, even as I acknowledge and admit that, I'm not so sure that just because we reduce the things that police do, it changes their attitudes about the public they're supposed to serve. I'm not so sure that reducing uh, their call sheet, so to speak, of things they have to respond to uh, changes mm -hmm. this mindset that they have that it's us versus them, and ultimately it's about my own survival. I'm not sure that one leads to two. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And surprisingly enough, I completely agree with you. Um, I have grown increasingly skeptical of the idea that we are going to train our way out of the problem of police culture and violence. I think that things like procedural justice and cultural sensitivity and de-escalation, I'm not saying don't do those things. But I do think that we have limited political capital, we have limited financial resources, and we have limited political will. And so knowing that these things are limited, uh, I think a conversation might ought to begin with an admission of what policing is, and policing is violent. Mm. Uh, I'm less and less convinced that we are going to change the fundamental nature of the institution, which is why I think that our time and energy and resources might be better spent investing in non-police solutions that coincidentally can enhance safety not only for the public, but also for the police. I have no problem uh, engaging in dialogue when it comes to police about training. I've had more conversations about police and training than I can count over the course of my career. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and one of the reasons why I get annoyed by that conversation is kind of it, it just wears thin for me. It's because we talk about training, but we don't talk about the other part, which is who we train. We talk about training, mm -hmm. but not who we train. So when we come forward, I want to ask, uh, Michael, whether or not the real issue here is who we allow to become police in this country. We can we can indict the training all day long. But if you start now training the wrong person, it reminds me of 
the late great coach Bobby Knight. Bobby had his issues, of course. But when I was a student at Indiana University, <laughs> uh, Bobby Knight was the head coach of, uh, of IU men's basketball. Uh, and one day I, I was in a conversation with Coach Knight, uh, and I uh, used the phrase, uh, you know, I don't know what we were talking about, but I used the phrase, practice makes perfect. He said, no, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And in, in Bobby Knight style, just you know, just deadpanned <laughs> with no love, no compassion. No, it doesn't, Tavis. Practice does not make perfect. And I was repeating this refrain I heard a thousand times. So I just stood there froze to see what he was going to say. Mm. He says, Tavis, practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Mm-hmm. If you practice something the wrong way for too long, you, you'll never get it right. So practice doesn't make perfect. you got to practice it the right way to make it perfect. That's that's It's an interesting analogy, I think, uh, that we'll discuss when we come forward about training. You can train all day long, but if you're training the wrong way, you got a problem. And that's Michael's point earlier about training them where they have this mindset that my survival is above all else, uh, 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 most most primary. But then this, the, the, the other question, the greater question of who are we training? We'll get to that when we come forward. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Rank number 45 on the heavy hundred list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. He does indeed with Michael Sierra uh, Aravello, who is author of the new book, The Danger Imperative, Violence, Death, and the Soul of Policing. In case you've just tuned in, we already unpacked and interrogated that that, that frame, that uh, that phrase, the soul of policing. Uh, but, uh, but Michael, I was saying a moment ago, and uh, if I'm wrong, uh, feel free to disabuse me of this notion. It's not just mm-hmm. about the training. It's about who we train. I don't know uh, where we are on that question, sir. Sure. So I think that there's a couple of things to point out here. One uh, is about race and gender. Mm-hmm. And so we do have evidence that, uh, for example, a paper was published in Science a few years ago, and it found that black officers and Hispanic officers and female officers use force less often than male officers and then white officers, and that holds constant across all those groups, specifically when interacting with black civilians. What's important to point out, though, is that the effect size, meaning how important that difference is, is relatively small. It's not fundamentally changing patterns of policing. Mm-hmm. And so there is something to be said for diversifying a police force in terms of gender and in terms of race. But frankly, if you think that putting black people and Latino people and women in uniform is going to address the fundamental nature of policing as a violent institution, you know, I got sand to sell you on the beach. Mm. And uh, the late, great James Baldwin was the one who himself said, uh, you know, Negro policemen are feared more than whites, for they have more to prove and fewer ways to prove it. And I think that's a, that's a feeling that many in the black community can attest to, that sometimes your skin folk, they aren't your kin folk. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't think necessarily changing who's in the uniform is going to fundamentally shift things. To your point, uh, quoting the, the great James Baldwin, just reading a piece today in the New York Times, he got a wonderful piece about Baldwin uh, and uh, how one should uh, get introduced to his work. I highly recommend it if you've not seen it. Uh, great piece about Baldwin today mm-hmm. again in the New York Times. Um, but to your point, um, quoting Baldwin, what's your sense of how uh, what we saw, for example, in Memphis with those black cops uh, beating and killing mm-hmm. Tyree Nichols, what does that do mm-hmm. to this narrative uh, about the danger imperative, violence, death, and the soul of policing where people of color, or for that matter, where white folk are concerned? Mm-hmm. So I think that what you see with Tyree Nichols beyond the, the horror of that particular police killing is that 
this is about an institution. Earlier, you used the phrase bad apples. And I think what I argue in the danger imperative is that this is not a story of bad or immoral apples. This is a story of systems. Mm. This is a story of an institution working exactly as it's designed to work. I receive that. Very predictable outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so what's important to recognize, I argue, is that we, uh, we are not so different in many cases from the officers that we see patrolling. The system, the institution is designed to take people, often young, often young men, and to show them and prove to them that the job that they are undertaking is one of profound danger. And if they hope to go home at night, then they had better take this seriously, because if they don't, they're going to wind up in a casket. Um, this is the system working as it was designed to work. And I think that what you saw in Memphis with those black officers proves that just because you change the race of the person wearing the uniform, yeah. it doesn't change the institutional imperative to provide for officer safety at all times and to yeah. justify all sorts of behavior under the auspices of officer safety. Our many moments with Michael Sierra Arvello when we come forward. His new book is called The Danger, Imperative, Violence, Death, and the Soul of Policing. You're listening to him right now, and I'm glad about it on Tavis Smiling. Seeking the truth. Speaking the truth. This is the Tavis Smiley Show. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Got about three minutes left in this conversation. Three minutes left with Michael Sierra Arvello and his new book, The Danger Imperative, Violence, Death, and the Soul of Policing. In the text, he shows how policing's preoccupation with danger shapes police culture and violence in the United States. Um, I think this is the exit question or certainly one of them, <laughs> Michael. Um, you talked uh, moments ago about, uh, and I, I'm glad you corrected me, and I, 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 you did it so smooth and so subtly that I, I didn't even feel the pain. Um, <laughs> like, my, <laughs> like, like my doctor's nurse. I'm glad uh, to hear it. Yeah, like my doctor's nurse giving me my shot in my left arm. Um, so smooth. But I, I, I used the phrase bad apples, uh, and uh, mm. I will now correct myself going forward and never use that phrase again because you said, no, Tavis, it's not really bad apples. When it comes to bad police, uh, bad policing in this country, uh, it's a system, and the system is doing exactly mm-hmm. what it is designed to do. So, away uh, with the phrase "bad apples," and now I'll start talking about systems. Quoting you, and that the mm-hmm. system is doing exactly what it is designed to do. With that in mind, if the system is doing exactly what it was and is designed to do, how then do we ever change this preoccupation with violence that you also told us exists? Mm. So for me, I think that there are certain structural realities um, that are going to be very difficult to shift to change the preoccupation with violence that is at the soul of the institution of policing. I think one of the main things there is guns. Guns are an unavoidable reality in the United States. We have uh, over 400 million guns in the U.S. That's a conservative number, and that's more guns than there are people. Uh, That's just a harsh reality of policing American streets. And so... Considering that the Second Amendment is a reality and the guns probably aren't going anywhere, I, again, don't think it's completely irrational for police to be concerned with their safety. I just don't think that police should be going to do as many things as they are. And so instead of focusing our energy on changing police culture and constraining that institution uh, in the way that we've been trying through things like training and 
uh, and other measures, I think that we should invest in non-police interventions that can actually enhance safety for officers and the public. You know, that, I, I hear that answer, and it's 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 plausible, uh, but um, mm-hmm. I'm not so sure how persuasive it is. Uh, although you've done the research mm-hmm. here, and I, and I raise that because here's, it, it leaves me feeling like bankrupt and sort of hollow. Uh, the Bible says yeah. that sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. It just it feels hollow for me because when I hear you say that we can't change the system, we can't change the culture. Mm. So the answer is basically I'm putting it in in in, in Tabish phrase, Tabish phraseology. Mm. Your answer basically is to just keep us away from them. <laughs> just don't send them mm-hmm. out. Don't send them out to do certain things. And that seems that, that it's just hard to swallow that that is the answer just to keep them away from us don't send them out to do certain things it kind of reminds me of joe biden uh who many people believe uh that his best chance of winning re-election is that the other guy gets convicted not not that you can beat him at the polls but you want the guy to get convicted mm-hmm. and his getting convicted gives you a better chance to win i'll take a victory any way i can take it but it just seems a little mm, a little weird to me michael mm. So let me so let me clarify there. I'm not saying that we should certainly not arrest our way out of the problem by putting police in jail. That's what we're suggesting here. Yeah. Uh, I think that what I think that what we do need to do uh, is invest in interventions that again don't require police intervention. Right. Uh, to make things safer for everybody. And those examples are actually very concrete. We know from research that in- increasing lighting and improving lighting in high crime areas sure. can reduce crime and violence. We know that greening lots and, and fixing facades can reduce violence and reduce crime. We even have evidence that suggests that if you plant trees and reduce the ambient temperature within cities, you can reduce violence that way yeah. because temperature no, I- is something strongly correlated with violence. Nope, I received those things, uh, and the the book is chock full of examples just like that. So I wasn't pushing back on Michael's research. I was just saying it just uh, feels sort of strange that we can't get them to be better people, that we can't get them to be better people. Of course, Dr. King once said, you can't legislate morality. I get that, uh, but I take the suggestions that Michael Sierra Arvello is um, laying out in his new book. It's called The Danger Imperative, Violence, Death, and the Soul of Policing. Michael, congrats on the work. Thank you for doing this work that is often published in these leading journals, and thank you for this conversation, sir. Thanks so much, Tavis. I appreciate your time. My great delight to have you on. More of Tavis Smiley on this last day of Black History Month when we come forward.